Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 through chapter 12, verse 2. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand the throne of God. One of my favorite parts, absolute favorite parts of the Christmas season is buying gifts for my children. I love it. I'm invested in every part of it. Uh, for about a decade, my wife and I have been going away one weekend in December and doing all of our Christmas shopping in that weekend. Uh, it's a whirlwind and I love it. I mean, I, I'm even down with going to one store and then finding the thing that we wanted, putting it on hold, and going to seven other stores to see if we can save 50 cents, <laughs> only to return to the original store and buy it there. Uh, I'm involved in the wrapping, in putting it under the tree. I love every part of it. It's one of my favorite, absolute favorite things. And I was thinking this week about why it is that I enjoy it so much, and here's what I came up with. Tell me, especially if you're a parent, if you resonate with this. It feels like so much of parenting is keeping score. That's what I feel like. I feel like I'm keeping score. I mean, I, I'm trying to raise children who hopefully will be responsible, caring adults who will live with integrity, and that means we involve discipline and consequences and conversations about responsibility, and that's just Amy to me. We haven't even gotten to the kids yet, <laughs> okay? So it, it's a lot of conversations like that, taking things away, giving them back, taking them away, giving them back. Feels like so much of what I do is keeping score and then living out of the score, but not giving gifts at Christmas. No, at Christmas, you get a gift whether you have a great GPA or a bad one, whether you're grounded or not, whether your trust level is high 
or low. Because at Christmas, my wife and I buy gifts for our kids not because of them, not because of their performance, not because of their love for us. We buy gifts for them because of our love for them. It's about how we feel about them. It's the overflow of the way that we feel. It's like one time a year where nothing's conditional, no conversations about responsibility, just we love you, here's a gift. I don't know if you realize this or not, but we have been conditioned, hardwired, to believe that God is a score-keeping God. That the way he relates to us is about performance, giving things and taking them back, discipline and consequences. But actually, the biblical vision of God is much more like Christmas morning. It is God loving us, not because of us, but because of him. Not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, but because he loves us that much. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you have a Bible, would you take it out and open it to Matthew chapter 1? Uh, I'm also going to be referencing Hebrews 12, just like it was read. So if you want to turn there and put something in your Bible. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along in the Bible, Matthew 1 is available on these Bibles that are in the pew in front of you or in the back of the room in East Hall on page 757, and Hebrews 12 is on page 948. So you can use these Bibles and those page numbers to read along if you'd like. And as you're turning there, let me hold out to you a three-point outline I'm going to use to guide our time together. Three points, very simple, and they go like this. I want to talk about the gift of God's goodness. The gift of God's goodness. Second, I want to talk about what happens when you open it. And third, how you can open it. Okay, the gift of God's goodness, what happens when you open it, and how you can open it. All right, let's start first with the gift of God's goodness. When I talk about God's goodness, I feel obligated to tell you that the Bible gives us a million ways that God is good. And I don't have the time and space to exhaust them. There are so many reasons that God is good. When I say God's goodness here, I'm using it in the way that it comes to us in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, let me show you three things from these few verses in Matthew 1 that show us the goodness of God. Here's the first one. God draws near. God draws near. What I mean to say is that God is coming close to us. That's part of what makes Christmas so meaningful. God, through his son Jesus, comes to earth to us. Now, the reason why this is important is because the Bible tells us that our world is broken. You, you don't need me to convince you of that. Let's just agree and move forward. But the world is broken, the Bible tells us, because we are broken. And we are broken because our relationship with God is broken. You know this experientially if you've ever laid awake at night in your bed, kind of tossing and turning, looking up at the ceiling, saying something like, God, are you out there? God, do you care? Those questions come from an innate awareness that our relationship with God is broken. But here's the thing. When a relationship is broken, someone has to make the first move. Like when I have a fight with my wife, Amy, one of us has to reach across the aisle. One of us 
has to go seeking the other person. I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed to say it, that it's almost always my wife. I'm really bad at this. Uh, when, when someone upsets me, I kind of show them how upset I am by turning cold, by waiting for them to say something. Maybe you're like me. I, I hope not. But I see enough spouses looking at the spouse to know some of you are, right? It's tempting to think that's how God is. That we have things that we are rightfully embarrassed about, damage that we know we've done to God, to ourselves, to each other. And so we expect that because our relationship with God is broken, that he is waiting for us to make the first move, for us to show up to church, for us to pray, for us to up our devotion, for us to do something that would show him we're serious about putting the relationship back together. But the Bible tells us actually that's not who God is at all. That God knows our relationship with him is broken and he doesn't wait for us. He comes to us. That in Christmas we have a God who takes the first step, who comes looking to reconcile with us, who's bothered enough by the idea that our relationship with him is broken, that he crosses the aisle, that he comes to us in Jesus. Now, the implications of this are massive because it means that God's primary feeling towards us is not anger. God's not aloof. He's not hiding. He's not distant. He's not cold. And in fact, anytime we find ourselves feeling distant from God, Christmas is a reminder that any distance between us and God is entirely ours. It's never his. He is a drawing near kind of God. But the second thing I want you to see is not just that he draws near, but that he draws near with a promise. Now, now this is really important because the idea of God drawing near in and of itself is not necessarily good news. I mean, God could draw near with judgment. He could draw near with anger, with wrath. He could draw near with a contract. Hey, I'm willing to enter into a relationship with you, but I'm going to need you to stipulate the following. But when God draws near here in Matthew chapter 1 to Joseph, he tells Joseph, I am doing something. I am making a promise. Your wife is going to have a baby, even though she's a virgin. And that baby, you're going to name him Jesus, and he will rescue my people from their sins. God says, I'm up to something, Joseph. That something is going to put our world back together. And that something is not conditional. It's not propositional. It is a promise. I have drawn near to tell you, to whisper to you, to excite you with what I am doing. And the third thing I want you to see is not just that God draws near with a promise, but that God always keeps his promises. God says to Joseph, your, your wife, who's a virgin, is going to have a baby, and that baby is going to rescue my people from their sins. Now, Joseph would have had no idea necessarily what that was going to mean literally. He only had the promise. But of course, we have the rest of the story. And you must know that Christmas is the beginning of the story. A birth is always the beginning. There's something coming afterwards. Let, let me give you a metaphor. My seven-year-old son, Graham, had a basketball game yesterday. And I have to tell you, having been at that game, none of the kids are very good at basketball. 
Okay, the fundamentals are a little scattered. There's a very loose sense of the rules, particularly traveling. Okay? So you're watching, and it doesn't matter, right? Because it's cute. It's cute. And they're all very warm and friendly. And every time someone makes a shot by some miracle, everyone celebrates, right? It is rough basketball. But what's funny to me is I have older kids too. So I know that some of these kids are going to grow up and be really good at basketball. It doesn't seem like it, but they're going to be. Because seventh grade, or not even seventh grade, seven-year-old basketball is, is just the beginning. It's about getting started on their journey towards basketball. We have to watch them grow up to see who will become the great basketball players. It's the same with the story of Jesus at Christmas. That God draws near in Jesus with a promise. I'm going to do something wonderful. I'm going to put our world back together. But Christmas is really an invitation to pay attention to the rest of the story. The rest of the story, of course, unfolds in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we'll see about Jesus is that Jesus, as the Son of God, lives a completely righteous life without any of the disappointment or embarrassment or guilt or shame that you and I feel rightfully based on our lives. Jesus lives in perfect obedience to God. And the life of Jesus culminates not in a celebration or coronation, but in the cross, because Jesus tells us that he's come to come up under the wrath and anger and judgment of God as he bears the sins of God's people so that God the Father might exhaust his anger onto his own son so that the son might bear the righteous indignation of God so that every victim could have what happened to them paid for so that every crime might be justly put away. And Jesus dies up under the anger and wrath of God. And three days later, he raises from the dead, and God is saying, not only have I drawn near, not only have I drawn near with a promise, but I am going to do all the wonderful things. The promise is about me and what I will do, not about you and what you will do. Christmas is an invitation to see the goodness of God in Jesus in such a way that you might come to believe that God is building relationship with people, not on the basis of them, their morals, or their religion, but on the basis of the fact that he is making and keeping wonderful promises in Jesus. Well, I don't want you to miss this. Because Christmas is a missile to the idea that we earn or achieve or unlock God's love and God's favor through the things we do. Christmas is a reminder that the goodness of God is about him. It's not about us. God isn't keeping score. He's giving gifts out of his nature and out of his character and out of his heart. And if you've grown up in the church, you can miss the significance of this because you've been around it for so long. It reminds me of just this week. My wife, Amy, is a wonderful cook. But there's a, we have a big family of five kids, seven of us. So inevitably, somebody's disappointed with whatever we're having for dinner. Right? So this particular night, Amy had made milk braised pork with a fried herb salsa. It was awesome. One of my kids said, I'm not eating this. <laughs> and Amy is usually so gracious about it, but she'd had enough. So she said, you know, you guys are going to miss out on, you're going to miss this really good food when you're out on your own. And she's right. I mean, I remember in college eating Pop-Tarts for dinner. <laughs> I, mean, I remember going to Walmart and paying $1 for a frozen pizza, cooking it, not even cutting it, just holding it and eating it, <laughs> which worked fine because it was half cardboard anyways, <laughs> right? 
But she's right. The kids have no idea how good they have it with home-cooked meals. Listen, friends, don't be so close to the message of Christmas that you miss its significance. God could have come to you with a contract, with a proposition, with a plan, with a program, but instead he came to you with a promise. Grab hold of Jesus and watch what I do in him. The gift of God's goodness is what Christmas is about. But here's the second thing I want you to see, and that is what happens when you open it. What happens when you grab hold of the goodness of God? We've attached Matthew 1 to Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 11, beginning of Hebrews 12. If you're not familiar with the Bible, let me set a little context for you that's really important. Hebrews 11 is a really famous chapter of the New Testament. It's often called the Hall of Faith because it is a retelling of the story of the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, uh, through the famous heroes, men and women, who did amazing things for God. And it'll say, by faith, so-and-so did this, and by faith, so-and-so did that. And it goes on and on about their achievements and their accomplishments. And then Hebrews 12 begins this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also, and those words, if you're following along, are soul-crushing. Because read the wrong way, what Hebrews 11 is saying is that we need to be heroic like the famous heroes in the Bible, that we need to have the courage of Moses, the faith of David, the integrity of Noah, that we have no excuses because these men and women did amazing things for God, you and I must also be men and women of incredible courage and incredible integrity and incredible faith. And that's fine as inspiration goes, I guess, except for if you're like me, you're not always those things. And so instead, Hebrews 11 reads like a list of what I'm not as a list of indictments. Why couldn't I have the courage of Moses? Why didn't I have the faith of David? Why don't I have the integrity of Noah? And I have to say that some of you I know are here this weekend because it's Christmas and you've come back to church. And let me just say, we're always glad to see you. It doesn't matter how long it's been. It doesn't matter why you've come. I know some of you are here because you were told your presence were conditional upon your coming to church. Good job. I hope you love whatever they got you. But maybe the reason you haven't been back for a while is because of this kind of soul-crushing message. Be more. Do more. Try harder. Have more faith. Have more courage. Have more integrity. But I have to tell you that that is not an accurate reading of Hebrews 11. But you see, the Bible is not the story of people who do more or try harder or believe more or have more integrity. The Bible is the story of God's goodness and what happens to people when they grab hold of it. In fact, the most powerful way you see this in Hebrews 11 is in verse 19. If you have a Bible open, you can look at it. I'm going to just reference it. But there's this crazy story in Genesis chapter 22 about this guy named Abraham. Let me give you a little context on Abraham. Abraham is a very old man when God speaks to him for the first time. And God says to Abraham that he is going to make Abraham an old man and his wife Sarah an older woman. He's going to make them into a great family, which is a crazy promise because 
they're old and they're beyond the age of having children. But God tells them, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do something wonderful. God draws near with a promise and the promise is for a son. And in fact, God keeps his promise because he always does. And Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. And in a beautiful kind of turn of phrase, they name him Isaac, which means son of laughter. And, they, and that's a double entendre because they, they name him that because when God first told them they were going to get pregnant, they laughed. They didn't believe him. They laughed. But they also name him son of laughter because when he was born, they laughed a different kind of laugh, a laugh of joy. It's a beautiful story. It's an amazing promise of God that he keeps. Until Genesis 22, when God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to grab Isaac. I want you to go to the top of a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. I mean, when you're reading Genesis, that hits you like a ton of bricks. It's a crazy thing for God to ask. It's an awful thing for God to ask. And I want to assure you that God has no interest in child sacrifice. That actually the whole point of this story is God is differentiating himself from the pagan gods around Abraham who always required child sacrifice. And he's going to show Abraham that their relationship is not about Abraham and what he does for God, but rather about God and what he does for Abraham. When they get to the top of the mountain, there will be a ram waiting for them to sacrifice instead of Isaac. But that's not the part I'm interested in. The part I'm interested in is how does Abraham find the faith and the courage and the conviction to go up that mountain. With this son that he's waited for his whole life, this son upon whom all of his hopes and his dreams for the future are penned, this son, I mean, God said you're gonna make him into a great family, and that's hard to do if your son dies as a small boy. After all, he has to grow up, he has to have a family of himself. This is everything to Abraham and Sarah. How does Abraham find the courage to go up the mountain? And Hebrews 11 verse 19 answers that for us. So the writer of Hebrews seizes upon this little verse in Genesis 22, where Abraham says to his servant, who's been helping them carry the supplies, he says, you stay here, the boy and I are going up the mountain, and then we will come back. Which is an interesting thing for Abraham to say, because as far as he knows, he's going to sacrifice Isaac at the top of the mountain. And yet here he is saying, the boy and I are going to go up the mountain, and then the boy and I are going to come back. But here's what the writer of Hebrews 11:19 says, Abraham was so convinced of God's goodness, he was so convinced that God had made him a wonderful promise and that God was not in the habit of breaking his promises, that God always keeps his promises, that Abraham believed that even if he went to the top of the mountain and even if God did want him to kill Isaac, God is so faithful to his promises, so good, so loving, so kind, so merciful, that God would just raise Isaac from the dead. You see, what made Abraham Abraham wasn't his internal faith. It wasn't his morality. It wasn't his intrinsic integrity or courage. In fact, if you read the story of Abraham, he had very little of any of those things. What made Abraham Abraham is that he had come to believe that God was good and God always keeps his promises. See, what makes the heroes of the Bible heroes has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God. The Bible tells us that the key to living a life of fulfillment, the key to living a life of blessing, of, of wisdom, of flourishing, is simply to believe that God is in the habit of keeping his promises. To take him seriously when he says that this is the best way to do something. To trust him and to watch when he keeps his promises. It's so interesting to me that Christmas comes at the end of one year and right before the beginning of the next. 
Because if you're like me, you look back on the year ahead of, or behind you and you think of all the things you wish you had done that you didn't. Or all the things that you did that you wish you hadn't. Maybe that's why we keep ourselves so busy with festivities, so that we don't have to do a year in review where we look back and say, oh wow, 2023 was a year of disappointment. It was a year of not measuring up. You don't believe me, does anyone here remember what your resolutions were at the beginning of 2023? I'll take your silence as an answer. But Christmas is positioned right at the end of the year because it's a reminder that the hope of the lives we are looking for, the hope of the marriages and the families, the careers, the friendships that we're looking for has never actually been in us. But the hope of the relationship with God that we are hungry for has never actually been about us. It has rather been based on this idea that God is drawing near, that God is making promises, and that he is in the habit of keeping them. The Bible tells us when we open the gift of God's goodness, we begin to believe that God's love for us is about him, it's not about us. That God is making promises and that we can believe him. Then and only then will we be free to become the people that God wants us to be because we won't look to our own effort, we will simply trust God. Lean in to him. Listen to him. But what does that mean? Well, that's my third point. What does it mean for you and I to open the goodness of God? How do you and I access this deep and abiding confidence that God is drawing near and that God is making promises and that God keeps his promises? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also, and then this is what he says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If you want to open the gift of God's goodness this Christmas, you do it in two ways. You fix your eyes on Jesus as founder and then as perfecter. What do I mean? Well, let's start with founder. To say that Jesus is the founder of our faith is to say that he is the originator of the idea that we can trust God. That the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, his birth to a virgin, his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his incredible resurrection and ascension and coronation, the entire life and story of Jesus is designed to convince you and to convince me that God is for us, that God loves us, and that he can be trusted. Christmas is an invitation to shake off all the wrong ideas we have about God, all the crazy ideas we have about God being distant, about God being, being performance-driven, about God basing his love based on our effort. Christmas is an invitation to shake that off, whether for the first time or yet again to be reminded or to be invited to see that God can be trusted. How do we know? Because Jesus trusted God, and he died, and he rose from the dead. God can be trusted. How do we know? Because Jesus demonstrated his love for us in this, that God came and lived and died for us, to rescue us from judgment, to rescue us from his anger, to rescue us from our brokenness, to rescue us from the brokenness of this world, to promise us a world to come and to include us in it because of Jesus. I don't know where you're at with God. 
I don't know if you're feeling guilty or dirty or broken or ashamed. I don't know if you feel as though God might love everyone else in this room, but not you. But Christmas is a full frontal assault on that idea. God loves you so much, he drew near with a promise that he will keep to save you and to change you and to include you in the kingdom that he's building through Jesus. But the second way we fix our eyes on Jesus is not just as the founder of our faith, the originator of our faith, but also its perfecter. What does that mean? It means this, that not only do we look to Jesus for the origination of our faith, but we look to Jesus to sustain it. You see, we fix our eyes on Jesus as king and leader of every area of our lives, and then we watch what he does. Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation, behold, I am making all things new. And do you know how he's doing it? Not just by saving us and leading us to faith, but by men and women who take their marriages to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have taught us to trust God. Does God have anything to say about marriage? Leaning in and watching him make it new. It's for the exhausted, frustrated, hanging in there, stay-at-home mom with all those kids saying to Jesus, do you have anything to say about kids? Do you have anything to say about motherhood? Do you have any encouragement, any hope, any leaning into his promises and finding reason to get up and move forward? You see, Christmas is an invitation to go to the same God who loved us enough to draw near once and to ask him to draw near in every single areas of our, area of our lives and to watch what he does when he leads us to blessing and wisdom and flourishing because he has promises for us in a variety of categories and he always keeps them. That's why it's so wonderful that Christmas becomes before the beginning of the year when we're thinking about how we might be made new and, and how we might change and how we might become something other. And Christmas is a reminder that if you want to know how to really change, if you want freedom from addiction, if you want to save the marriage that feels beyond saving, if you want wisdom for parenting and a million other things, why not go to the God who draws near with a promise that he always keeps in Jesus? Why not go to the baby who becomes a king? Why not go to God with that thing and say, you have taught me in Jesus that you can be trusted. Would you show me what it means to trust you in every area of my, lives, of my life? Listen, friends, Christmas is meant to free us from the awful ideas we have gathered about God to remind us that the only hope we ever have had or will have of an actual relationship with God is if the basis for that relationship is him and not us. His love, not ours. His devotion, not ours. His faithfulness, not ours. That's what it means to open the gift of the goodness of God. Let me pray for us. Father God, Thank you so much for being a God who draws near. And when you draw near, thank you so much for bringing a promise, for telling us what you're going to do because of who you are. Because God, if you had come to us with anything that required us to be or do or accomplish or earn, 
we never would have gotten there. Thank you for your incredible love towards us in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.